Hey, what's up, tribe? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the TFC Audio Project Down Under. This week, I'm joined again by Tom Williams from Breath Performance Physio. And in this episode, we chat all about sleep. We talk through the evolutionary context of sleep and circadian rhythms, the benefits of good sleep and the consequences of poor sleep, how you can tell the difference, and simple practices you can use to improve your sleep quality. Alright, Tom, thanks for coming back on. We're back at it. Back at it again. So, yeah, this is a round two uh, with Tom from Breath Performance Physio. Our last episode was on his main area of interest, which is obviously breath. Um, Highly recommend checking that one out because it was a really good conversation. And we'll probably have a follow-up on breath as well. But one of his other big interests is sleep. And so I figured I was doing a, a weekly topic on sleep and... Tom lives across the road, so if we could get him Come down back. again for another episode. Um, so yeah, sleep is one of those topics that was out of the spotlight for the longest time and, I mean, culturally wasn't very valued, uh, but it seems to be making a big resurgence, especially lately. And I mean, I started hearing about it on a lot of my health podcasts probably yeah five or six years ago and started getting quite interested in it. But then even more recently with the release of Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker and him going on Joe Rogan and TED Talk and all of that, it's starting to get a lot of attention, mm. which is really good. Yeah, no, it's... um. Uh, well, firstly, thank you for having me back for a oh, too. Yes. Appreciate that. Um, yeah, sleep, same on my front. is sort of maybe not so much five, six years ago, but the last sort of three years has really been on the radar of ways to help people. Um, mm. And what's the priority? Breathing is my first one, but sleep is right up there if not probably the most important thing you can do for someone. And I mean, Matthew Walker probably brought it to the spotlight of the world with the TED Talk because he talks so like open and honest and fluid about the importance. Yeah, very (laughs) frank about certain parts of your body. Um, But uh, he is really good and he's also done a masterclass. I don't know if you've seen Masterclass online. Oh, that's right. I did see that. Which is really cool. It just sort of reiterates what he's written about in the book. And what he has said on the podcast, uh, sorry, on his podcast with Joe Rogan and the TED Talk. Mm. But it's just really insightful. And when you understand not so much just the science of sleep and why you do it, but more about the practicality of how to actually get the good night's sleep, that's sort of where I think it has become a lot more known now. People actually have strategies and we understand it's a little bit trial and error and such. Um, and it's it's become so easy to find all that information now it's just again the practicality of how do i do it for myself and i think that's so important because again sleep is one of those things that i feel for the longest time people have just been like oh i'm just not a good sleeper or some people think oh i'm a great sleeper and that's just how it is or that's just how i am or you know possibly people think it's genetic or or Mm. something or it's just out of their control whereas yeah a lot of the research lately and a lot of the messaging coming out is that yes you do actually have a good amount of control over the quality of your sleep as well as the quantity i mean quantity can be hard depending on your lifestyle and your work and your parent uh, whether you're parents if you have kids or you know xyz but uh there is a lot that we can do a lot that we can control and that obviously we like to focus on what we can control so today we want to talk about through the evolutionary context of sleep and the benefits of good sleep, the consequences of poor sleep, um, and just obviously talk about the practical tips as well. But I thought it might be good to just chat 
quickly um, or not quickly, however you like. Um, you can go into your life story if you like. Life story. Um, but yeah, just where your big interest in sleep really came from and then what's been your experience with sleep and sleep practices in your own life. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, if we start off with my life and we'll go into where my interest came in. I mean, as we were speaking before we started, there was there was a year there, sort of 12 to 18 months when I was younger that I didn't, I, like we're saying, I, could, I don't know if I didn't dream or couldn't remember the dreams. Mm. And at the time, I mean, I was a teenager. I didn't know if there's any anything right or wrong there. It's only in the last sort of few years that I've come to realize as to why that was happening and some sort of theoretical models. And it, I found it quite fascinating because it did sort of link in with other parts of my life. And I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. But really what got me started on the journey to learn about sleep was Matthew Walker's TED Talk. Like mm, that was it. Mm. There was That was like the moment when I was listening to him talk. It's not like a light bulb went off that sleep is good. It was more so, as you were saying, in society, we've been really sort of dogged down by this idea of being busy, yeah. right? And it's good to be busy and it's a badge of honor to be busy. And the motto of sleep when you're dead was obviously, has been branding around for years. And at some point when I listened to that, I was like, hmm, maybe sleep is useful. And whilst you, everyone knows it intuitively, you don't know what you don't know. So as I started to delve into it deeper and deeper, I went, oh, yeah, there's a lot of benefits here. And there's a very obvious like evolutionary reason that if every animal that we've ever studied sleeps, it's probably worthwhile sleeping. Yeah. And then, then we figure out all the whys, but that just seems to make the most logical sense. And it was, okay, what am I seeing with clients as to why they're not getting better they're struggling, they're stressed, they're not being able to do their exercises or they're not doing good lifestyle and life habits. And if you don't have that pillar or that foundation of good sleep, it's hard to do everything else. Oh yeah, big time. I found that, I started asking that to my physio clients as well, routinely is what, how are you sleeping? Are you getting, how much are you getting a night? And are you waking up, you know, feeling refreshed? Are you feeling like you're getting enough sleep? Because a good amount of them weren't and whether that was because of, their injury or some you know pain was keeping them up which obviously needs to be dealt with or whether they just didn't sleep well usually then it was very common for poor sleep for people who have had chronic or persistent injuries and pain to have also have poor sleep Mm. and you know correlation or causation or whatever but we do know that sleep is such a foundational pillar of health that it needs to be addressed in everyone, regardless of what, like we were talking about in the breath podcast, that just breath, breathing, and sleep, mm. and feet, <laughs> I reckon. Got to get the feet in there. Need to be yeah. addressed for everyone, regardless of what they're coming in for, because it's so foundational. I think that it's a really interesting point, because we now know that it's foundational um, within the scientific community, but also within our own lives and practices. Mm-hmm. But we're not really taught it at uni. No, we, we, we're, I can't remember learning anything about sleep at nah, uni. Very little, if anything. The, the thing that we were pointing towards is you should ask about how someone's sleep was. Yeah. But not what to do about it. No actionable True. items. So it was sort of a, at the time, felt like a redundant question because I couldn't do anything with it. So what was I going to do with that piece of information? Whereas in hindsight, it would make a hell of a lot of sense to ask how someone's sleeping, particularly for people who are in the hospital, where we know that they get very poor sleep because of the environment and the setup and the constant monitoring. And it was yeah. just something that we never applied. And I look back going, man, I wish I could have applied that then. Mm. But again, it's just sort of hopefully in the next few years, the physio course, the exercise physiology course, and everyone starts to include more and more and more. Because like you said, it's a foundation. And yeah. you can't build on a, a weak foundation. No, exactly. And 
something you said before about in terms of like priorities for the human body, like your big interest is sleep, uh, breath, and then sleep is obviously a second priority. I, I, I find it interesting to think about how you can go for, you know, a matter of minutes, depending on how well you train, a matter of minutes, it's always yeah. going to be minutes yeah, yeah, or minutes. seconds, um, without breathing, in order, you know, before you die. <laughs> um, Preferably not I'm die. actually not sure. You can probably go longer without water than sleep, I would think. Yeah, so there, there were but some studies um, that they have looked at, like length of time people can go without sleeping. Mm. And what ends up happening is like the body is pretty smart. It tries to self-regulate. At some point, it almost shuts you down to go to sleep. Yeah. But what they have found is that you become not so much schizophrenic, but delusional and you become yeah. very delirious and you lose your consciousness. Now, I don't know where that stands in terms of healthy habits, but they know that it's got such terrible effects to the body that the Guinness Book of World Records no longer yeah, that's right. like accepts any sort of sleep deprivation as a Guinness World Record because they understand how detrimental it is. So dangerous. And people were dying mm. trying to do it, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, they were. Yeah, there were multiple people who died because of it. Yeah. And, and so you literally die if you don't sleep. Mm. And I reckon, I go. I don't know, it depends on a few factors, obviously, but you could probably go longer without water than sleep at a, at a functional level, at least. Yeah. I don't know how I'm long. not running that experiment. No. Oh, yeah, let's get that through the N ethics N equals board. one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. N let's N equals one. <laughs> not today. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's a, it's a really interesting thing. And I remember watching this motivational video, um, yeah, number of years back. And I think it might've been just after I'd started learning about the, the importance of sleep on a podcast or something. And this motivational video was this guy like geeing up this room of people like, if you want to succeed, you got to want it so much. You got to want it more than you want to sleep and you got to want it more than you want to breathe. And I'm just like, what? This does not make any sense. Like, you you're not going to win that battle. Yeah. <laughs> I want it more than I can sleep. Uh, it's it's, just, it doesn't work. Exactly. And there, that is a, and the epitome of that success culture of like, if you want to succeed, you just got to sacrifice, especially sacrifice sleep because that's just a waste of time. Mm. And, you know, you could be working instead of sleeping, but it turns out scientifically and obviously through our own experience, in, your work is going to be half-assed <laughs> at best if you're not sleeping and if you're sacrificing. Like You might be putting more hours in, but those hours are not going to be as anywhere near as efficient or productive. And I, th I think that's the, the thing when you look at like the maximum of sleep on it and you're sleeping on a problem, right? Everyone intuitively knows to do that. And when they do do it, what, what ends up happening is they look at the problem differently. Now, there's mm. a lot of cool reasons for that. Let's not worry about them just at the moment. But if you work your 80 hours in a week, like it almost can be guaranteed that you could get that done in 60 if you're working that long and I almost can guarantee you get it on less. Yeah. If you just prioritize and zoned in and then had your rest. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's just that people have gotten into this habit across culture and in Australia, we're pretty bad for it that we think the longer hours mean we are more productive and it doesn't work that way. Mm. Longer hours means probably you get more work done overall, but the quality of the work is so far less that the, the quantity means nothing. And I think most people would agree that if, you could get the quality of work that was required out in a four-hour stint versus slugging for the eight hours. You'd take that. Absolutely. Like you'd straight up take it. And plus, you've got to think about quality of life too. Mm. So there's the quality of work, but then outside of that, you want to have a life. You want to be able to interact with your friends and family. You want to be able to exercise. You want to be able to, you know, 
do all of these things that aren't part of work and if you're not sleeping well, all of those will be affected as well. And, and I think one of the big points for that, so everyone will be different, right? Some people love work and like, I mean, I love my work, but I don't work silly hours. I work 32 hours a week in the clinic and then do all this stuff on the mm. side. I'm very fortunate to be loving my work and some people love working the 80 hours and they slog it out and they feel that sort of bravado of working. That's totally fine. What we're saying is it's not necessarily a well-rounded view of the world or your life, but you can keep living it. And one of the, the guiding factors is when you talk to older people, particularly like your grandparents or other people's grandparents, there's more people are focused on their friends, their family, their like other things, achievements in life right at the end. It's not, oh, I was at work for 80 hours a week for four years. I'm living that with a badge. There are other things that seem to be more important at that end. And if you look at that as a bit of a guiding marker, maybe it seems that we should have a better well-rounded life, mm. which is how we, you know you and I would approach it, yeah. than just slugging in one domain, which is work. And Yeah, and, and defining success differently, not mm. defining su- success as purely how much money you've made or how far your career has advanced, but defining it in terms of you know how good your relationships are and how good your health is and all of these other things. Do your things children that still are, talk to you? Do yeah. you still talk to all your friends? Like... All these infinitely more important things than just how much money you've made. And Mm. again, that's covered in research as well. In terms of health and happiness, it's not about money. It's not about career. It's about relationships and it's about, um, yeah, nutrition and movement Mm. and and all of these things that add up. And, you know, you could have all the money in the world and all the success in the world, but if you're struggling with health, suddenly none of that matters too much. And as a practical guideline for that, I think I can't remember what the research said, but there were, there's studies published that within maybe Australia, it's like a hundred to $150,000 a year, something like that, that once you hit that point, earning more money over doesn't make anyone any happier. Mm, yeah. So yeah, there, there right. is like an upper threshold, like for most things that where the money can be very useful to obviously help you live and maintain a certain lifestyle. But after that, what's, what's the point? It's more money, more problems. Yeah. More, more problems. <laughs> Um, yeah, so it might actually be helpful as well just to start digging into the evolutionary context around sleep. And Matthew Walker obviously talks about how the how ubiquitous sleep is across all animals and that it's a bit of a, again, it's not really a paradox, but that evolutionary, an interesting thing with the evolutionary background about sleep is so ubiquitous that everyone, every animal does it despite the obvious survival disadvantages where you're going into this period of essentially unconsciousness where you're at risk of at bigger risk of predation and things you're less responsive so all of these things and we can talk i think it'd be helpful to talk about just the circadian rhythm of the planet and how that affects our circadian rhythm and yeah okay so i mean one of the first things that you point out like the the fact that every creature studied has has some form of sleep is again it's indicative of the importance of sleep mm. and i think matthew walker states that the only one that we are unaware of whether it's sleep is a baby killer whale or blue whale is that right yeah and the only reason is because the mother goes off to have the birth and then they come back to the pod they haven't been able to study the little one as it's sort of traveling with the mother so mm. they wouldn't definitively say at that time but given like the support, it is hypothesized that they do sleep. Yeah. And so it, if you say even 99.9% of everyone sleeps, Still a lot. that's pretty, pretty much a lot. Everyone except the blue whale. Yeah. So everyone except the blue whale. So then so let's, if we talk about the circadian rhythm, it's really important to understand 
how we have evolved across time. Now take away all of the last sort of thousands of years of evolution. We were humans around the world and the thing that we used to govern like the days versus the nights is darkness and lightness, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Like it was that simple. So somewhere along the lines, our bodies picked up that, hey, it's light. Let's wake up. Let's do stuff. It's safer. There's more time for activity. We can hunt better. We can forage for food. We can do all that stuff. When it's nighttime, we can rest. Yeah. And it became this circadian rhythm that our bodies would just link in with the natural environment. Yeah. Or vice versa, I suppose, for, mm. for nocturnal animals. And if, you're, and if you're looking at it from a Matthew Walker perspective, he, he the chicken and the egg question is, did we wake up from sleep or did, were we awake and then we sleep first? <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, so it's, it's a really interesting point. But wow. the, the point of like that statement is more so that we naturally sort of govern towards following what the, the sun was doing. Yeah, we're, we're go- yeah, exactly. The, the, night, the light slash dark cycles of the world we adapt to in some way we it's not just random when we're awake or when we're asleep so diurnal animals are awake at, during the day and sleep at night and then nocturnal animals are the opposite mm. and an interesting thing about whales and dolphins and stuff as well though is the the unihemispheric sleep mm. i found that really cool because they can't and I, maybe that happens with sharks too or something some kind of similar process that basically allows them to continue moving and swimming and they're in just a, a more one, half of their brain, one hemisphere of their brain is in a deeper state of rest, mm. which is their version of sleep, and the other half is awake, so mm. to speak, and and then vice versa. It's really cool. It's really, yeah. it's really odd. And no human has been known to do this, just in case <laughs> anyone's wondering. So it's not something that we uh, currently have the capacity to do, but it seems to be like a survival mechanism. And mm. I mean, it's as we'll talk about chronotypes at some point, it seems like that's probably why chronotypes are a thing. Because mm. if you look at it from a tribal point of view, if everyone slept at the same time for the same sort of rough length of time, that is quite dangerous. Like yeah. from a predatory point of view, you might die. Whereas if some people were awake and then some people were asleep and then there might be a two to four hour window where everyone might be asleep, that is less time of everyone mm. being asleep than everyone being asleep for eight hours. Well, let's talk about chronotypes, actually, because it, it does come into the evolutionary context. So, I guess we can just really target humans here yeah. rather than all animals. But um, I mean, yeah, you and I were talking about this yesterday, so we'll, we'll probably bring some different words to it. So it'll be interesting because, I mean, like I said, I look at it very simply, probably based just off Matthew Walker. Of you have you have nighttime people and morning people. Yeah. So morning larks and night owls, and mm-hmm. you then there's a third sort of middle ground where people kind of mix between the both right now the rough percentage out of 100 percent, it's kind of like an even split it's like 30 and 30 and then right yeah 40 percent of people just sort of drift either way Hmm. effectively what it means is that some people will genetically uh, from your chronotype be more inclined to wake up early and some people will be more the other way to wake up late stay up later yeah now to a point that's very adaptable and you can train a little bit either way there is nothing wrong with that it's like everything it is a trainable aspect it's just a matter of how far it's hard to know because genetics are a thing yeah you're probably limited somewhat by your genetics and you might be better off training yourself to be better at what you're genetically predisposed to Mm. but obviously you can adapt either way and i think that the chronotype thing is interesting there is a book called The Power of When, which I haven't read, So, and we were talking about it mm. yesterday. So I think we'll, we'll dig into that and possibly do, talk about it in a follow-up podcast. I think he goes deeper into chronotypes and not just about sleep. He talks about 
you know, when to eat and when to work and, and all of these things. And the only other um, perception or, or understanding of chronotypes I've had is from a system called PH360, which uh, seems to break it down even more. So they break down the body types of mesomorph, endomorph, ectomorph into six different types, but then even further down into a 360-degree wheel. So you're, they do all these measurements, basically, mm. without going too deep into it. Um, take all these measurements, and then you get put onto a, a degree in, in the wheel, which is why it's pH 360. That makes sense. <laughs> and so they have lots of different, I guess, representations of what that means for you, depending on where you are at the wheel. But they'll talk about how people who are more meso-endo, for instance, which is me, um, which they call a, a, a connector, then they are more tend to be more earlier risers. Mm. Um, but then people who are more ecto, like pure ectomorph tend to be even earlier. And then people who are like endo, more endomorph tend to be like later, like night owls. That's pretty kind cool. Of thing. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. I, I did like go to one of their courses and study. I haven't really studied deep enough into the, those aspects of sleep, but I do know that that's something that they talk about, but even just for people to understand that there is two, at least two chronotypes, mm. morning lark and night owl, is a really important thing because some people would think, well, you know, I just tend to sleep in, like they might think that they're just lazy or that they're broken because there's this culture of you should wake up early mm. and maybe for 50% of the people waking up early is what they need to do and that really works. And then for the other 50%, they might find that they actually do a lot better with a night owl structure. Which is, I mean, even I was speaking to my friend about this this morning, having this discussion, because I am a morning person. I am a 5 a.m. riser now, mm -hmm. which has taken some training, right? I naturally will wake up at 6, roughly, but I've always been a morning person. He, he's not a morning person. He's definitely a night person. And there's a conflict of how, like, your lifestyle sort of go because I want to go to sleep earlier, which means I have to maybe leave early from events or such. And he might not rise up till eight, but if I'm up at five, that's a three hour gap. So mm. it does change some, some of your lifestyle habits. It does affect those things. And it makes it a bit easier to know that if, if you sort of are in a class, I suppose, and it gives you that, it's like, okay, I understand why now I want to do this a little bit more. Or I understand why I can stay up so late and everyone else is going to sleep. Yeah. It, it does put your mind a little bit at ease. And I, I do think it's worth noting. And I think what's very worth noting is that people are different across the lifespan. Yeah. Like children versus their, your adolescents versus teenagers versus young adults versus older people. Even though you can sit into one of these sort of classes or potentially one of these multiple classes, the way that your body adapts across time is different. So as mm. you age, you will have different, like naturally different times that you want to go to sleep and wake up. Yeah, for like, lots like the of the teenager reasons. example, hey. Yeah, they want to stay up later uh, because it's a part of their independence. Like they don't want to necessarily be in control by their parents. Yeah. So if they stay up later, they will probably wake up later. Yeah. And one of the issues that is raised within the sleep sort of research is that kids are often not forced, but sort of required to get up early to travel to school, mm. um, particularly if you go to a big school in the city. And then they're losing the quality sleep. Mm. And as we, we might touch on like the stages of sleep and such, but that's going to affect the type and quality of sleep yeah. that they get. And, they're and therefore their learning and memory and everything. The ability to concentrate. It comes with it. Yeah. So 
And then again, the older person, for example, will go to sleep at a different time to the adolescent. Yeah. So it is good to note that there are differences. And it, and that it can change across time. Mm. And that you can adapt either way if need be. It's yeah. not a set thing where you're like, oh, I'm a night owl, so there's no way I can wake up early. Yeah. You can train it. And yeah, what, what do you think about in terms of, like we were just talking about the light-dark cycles. And obviously tribally or ancestrally then it made sense for certain members of the tribe to be up later and sleep in longer and certain members to be sleeping earlier and waking up later Mm. what do you think do you think that all of them would still be up at sunlight regardless or would some of them sleep past sunlight i mean obviously we don't know but is from that terms of that morning lark and night owl thing i just hadn't really thought about it enough to say you know, if some people are genetically predisposed to be night owls, does that mean like back in the day that some people did sleep past the sunlight or would they all be up? It's a, it's we can hypothesize. Yeah, hypothesize. <laughs> if I was to make a hypothesis, I would reckon that you would have a variation zone of people and like the hours that they would wake up. Mm. And if just for the sake of the example, I'd say you have people who might wake up at five, which is before the sun. Yeah. And then people who might wake up at seven. Well, depending where you are. Yeah, well, exactly. Depending <laughs> on where in the world you are. But I reckon there's always going to be a window, right, of where they probably have woken up. And then across time, multiple years, you might have just slowly shifted more towards, you know, one pattern or another. Mm. Um, I think most people uh, okay. would normally have woken up, if you look at the when the sun rises, for whatever time, plus minus an hour or two, either, either side. Yeah. Because there was nothing else really governing why you would be awake or asleep. Yeah. So even if you said that's plus minus two when the sun rises, that is a four-hour window. Mm. So that gives you enough variance, I suppose, within a tribal setting to have longevity survival-wise. Yeah, that predisposition. And then I suppose it would have all been exacerbated by artificial lights and being being able to be indoors and shut off from the sun and so people which is only really new yeah like i I don't know if everyone noticed but it's only like the last 200 years like that this has become a thing yeah like when i correct me if i'm wrong someone but i'm pretty sure it was like london who had like the first like street lights that were not candles yeah, I would say uh, so. And like... I've got no idea, actually. Yeah, well, I have no <laughs> idea. It sounds but, right. Yeah, but it, I have, I've read about it because it was the first time in human history that we had lights outside of a mm. fire mm. that were lighting streets when it was normally dark. Yeah. So it is honestly with only in the last couple hundred years that this has happened. This isn't like thousands of years ago we started trying to develop this. Mm. So this mm. is why, similar to technology, it's all sort of still new to our evolutionary self. And we haven't quite figured out how to utilize it in a way that everyone has a better chance than not of having negative effects. Yeah. Where yeah. we're getting to that point of understanding it now, but then practically applying it across culture, across time, across education, we're still probably a little bit away of everyone having that as like fundamental knowledge. Yeah, because the idea here is that if we're governed or at least very much influenced by the light-dark cycles of the planet, then we come in and expose ourselves to artificial lights through technology then our brain can't necessarily tell the difference. Well, like we can consciously mm-hmm. tell the difference, but from a light perception point of view, it just registers the intensity of light yeah. rather than where it's coming from. And so even if we know consciously that it's dark outside and that it's nighttime, if we have light inside, then it's still triggering the receptors in our brain and our body 
that triggering the light receptors, which are telling us that, oh, it's daytime. And so mm. I shouldn't be getting sleepy. Which then affects all of the neurochemicals, neuromodulators that are trying to act to get you towards sleep. And mm. something that, I mean, we can touch on now if you want to talk about the light intensity, because that, do it. like, it's sort of, as I, I was showing you before, the, the way that we look at the light intensity is through Lux. Mm-hmm. Now, Lux is different from all sorts of devices. And it's a pretty interesting topic because when you look at the sun, normally it is really high in Lux. Like if we went and took a photo of it now, it might be up to something like 50,000 Lux. Yeah. Right. It's pretty, it's pretty like huge. When I take a photo, say of my screen here or like your laptop, it's not even close. Right. The, the issue that comes with when people talk about the light is often the blue and yellow lights. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones that sort of stimulate us and wake us up. So in the morning, if I go look at the sun as it's just at the horizon, there's a lot of blue and yellow light coming in, which is, again, my body doesn't perceive sunlight per se. It just perceives like the light as a neuro sort of signal. And then the body interprets it that way, like you said. It's not the same coming from your phone. It's not the same coming from the laptop. So the best thing you can do in the morning is probably get the intensity of the sunlight to wake yourself up and start the, the processes and... Again, if you use a Lux meter, like there's lots of apps out there. I had a look. I just bought the first one that was there. The difference in light intensity is huge, even if you look at it from inside the window, like we were saying before, um, before the podcast, versus outside. So if you want to start to like wake up and use that sun, go outside and look at it in the morning. That sunlight exposure is critical. It's the best thing to wake, help wake you up. Yeah, and yeah. you can like look at your phone and have the blue light on, and it will stimulate to a certain degree, but nothing quite like the morning sun. Yeah, and I think that's and why it's a plus one to two hours afterwards as well is still pretty vital. Yeah, you don't want to be waking up at midday sun. No, you want the morning sun, and that triggers certain hormonal releases. Hey, yeah. So the morning, every every morning that you wake up, you always have a spike in cortisol, which gets quite a bad rap from a lot of people there's like a stress hormone we talked about it last yeah, week yeah, on the stress yeah, body yeah yeah cortisol is great yeah like it does a great job and yeah. like naturally you'll get a boost of cortisol you get a boost of adrenaline so in the morning when you naturally get it it's sort of akin to when the sun rises and it is very much linked with the neuromodulation in the body it's good it's happy what we tend to do in society is we kind of fluctuate with that sort of cortisol level which can have negative effects down the track and the the Problem comes when, this is what we talked about last week, is that certain stresses are present chronically and then your cortisol is chronically elevated, so elevated over a longer period of time and doesn't have a chance to drop back to normal levels or optimal levels. And then that's where you get consequences to immune function and things like that. Yeah, and then you can't recover. You're not not having good sleep because of that chronicity of um, cortisol. And it's... And it's the amazing. poor sleep also creates more mm. elevated cortisol, so it's a negative cycle. Yeah, and, and it's, it is like it is just constantly going down the wrong rabbit hole. Same as what we were speaking about on the breathing podcast, like mouth breathing precipitates mouth breathing. Mm. Nose does the same thing. So yeah, you, you can kind of line up where you want your days to go and then obviously your weeks, your months, your years by simple stuff. And it's one of the biggest things, if um, no one's ever heard of it, the Andrew Human podcast is great. I honestly highly mm. recommend it. The whole first section is on sleep. And if you use the sun as a marker to sort of solidify or have pillars for your day in the morning and nighttime where if you wake up with the sun or at least within two hours of it, go look at the sun like at that really good lux of light, it'll start those processes naturally. If you then do the same thing when the sun goes down, your body will then start to understand, okay, it's time 
to start releasing more melatonin, which yeah. doesn't necessarily help you with sleep. It just kickstarts the act of sleeping. As in, yeah, it's, it just get, helps get you to sleep. It's not necessarily best, like it's not necessarily for sleep quality. So yeah, so the best analogy, I think, is probably Matt Walker who said this. If you imagine a running race, right, yeah. and you have people line up in a 100 meter dash, and all those are the chemicals that are going to help you sleep. The person who pulls the, the gun or sounds that is melatonin. Uh, yeah. So it's not really helping you get to sleep in the sense of like chemically. It just signals, hey, it's time to start going. Kicks everything off. Which is why melatonin is often called like the vampire mm. uh, molecule and because it is dark in, in its sense. Without it, it is much harder to activate sleep. So how do you get it to function? You need less cortisol. Yeah. And you need the rise of melatonin, which will happen if you go look at the sun or get sunlight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the idea is morning sunlight exposure Fair. to kickstart the cortisol and the stress, like the, I guess, the healthy stress response, which then gets you started in your wakeful cycle. And then at night, you want to avoid as much light as possible um, in order to kickstart the opposite because otherwise you're tricking your brain into thinking it's still daylight mm. even if you consciously are aware that it's nighttime. And and this might be an entirely side fun fact. I'm not sure if you've heard of this, but one of the cool things about your eyes and the way that they actually interpret the photons and stuff from the light is the top of my eye sees it's like reversed. You know how it's like flipped, right? So the way that as the light comes in, if the lights are above me, right, the the bottom of my eye seeing the light effectively, mm. right? And mm. vice versa. What they've found is that the bottom part of your eye is actually more akin or a little bit more sensitive to the light. So if you need to have lights on at home, right? Having candles and such in fireplaces, like obviously one thing is a fire hazard with that, but have floor lights, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So the, floor, the, the floor lights are the ones that are actually going to help you not have too much effective light, which is really cool because I never knew that. Like, so if you had like lighting around here, you're still going to have the light, but it's going to be a lot less intense and it's not going to be hitting the parts of the eye that are affected by the light as much as your roofing lights. Hmm, Fun fun side fact. So if anyone wants to make make a cave, it actually works. There's a really uh, cool couple of people who are out there have done the research on it and like have set up their houses with it. And I I, I think it's fascinating. That is. Another quick little fun fact. uh, I can't remember if Matthew Walker talks about this in his book, but they found that your eyes aren't the only photoreceptors in your body. And in fact, there's photoreceptors in your skin as well. And so I think they did a test on people who were sleeping and they shined like a laser light on the back of their knee. Apparently the back of your knee is like a dense... Is this is this BS? Or? Uh, so it's not BS. Um, I've looked into this a little okay. bit uh, just because I was interested. I've said it to people too. I thought it was um, logical. They have actually retracted the paper. Okay, right. So, okay. so what... Uh, I, for a, few, a year, oh, maybe dang. a year and a half... I I no, honestly, I, 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 I really like that fact. It's like, <laughs> that makes sense to me because the your body's going to receive light. Yeah. The the only sort of spot in your body that can interpret those photons naturally is going to be through your eyes. Mm-hmm. Now, you and I are huge on neuroplasticity. I have no doubt that in some capacity, the rest of your body can interpret whether it's the light itself or the heat from the light. Something will uh, happen. Yeah. Yeah. But the eyelids, right? So yeah. even if your eyes are closed and say you have the curtains open, the morning sun's coming up, the window's open, everything, that will still kickstart the process. Yeah, cool. However, the lie on the back of the knee, the paper, I haven't like re- reread the paper um, in a while. I did read it once, 
but apparently like the experimental setup and everything was a little bit you know, dodgy. Yeah, okay. But was it, it might have been a bit of an old paper because then I heard, mm-hmm. I heard I might be getting my timelines mixed up, but I heard that they used that in some war or they use it on soldiers where if they were on like a night post, then they'd shine lights on the back of their legs back of their knees to help them stay alert but again i'm gonna have to cross-reference this yeah, honestly it, it, it's probably possible but i know that paper was retracted because i've yeah, heard it stated right. multiple times okay. since right. and like it sounds like such a cool fact though yeah it is a cool like, fact i really liked it <laughs> was... it was real disappointing when i found out it wasn't real yeah but but either way light is a super important thing when it comes to sleep and that is just so obvious from the evolutionary context and also it's been studied pretty yeah. pretty comprehensively. Yeah, very comprehensively. Yeah. So if if you want to start setting up pillars of your day, again, like with all of it, we're not going to tell you what you should and shouldn't do. That's never the point. But light at the start and the end of the day will automatically start to help you with a lot of other things. If you're someone who has anxiety, if you are stressed, if you have poor concentration, poor memory, like all those things can be linked to sleep as you and I mm-hmm. know but they have done the research to show that even setting up something as simple as that can improve those things. Yeah, which is really great that... It's free. It's free. It's, yeah, it's another one of those It's stuff. like breathing. Yeah, it's free. Sunlight, you know. And I think people are... People have been trained to be a little bit scared of the sun because of, you know, yes, yes, large amounts of sun exposure that burn you can be bad and they can affect your skin and predispose you to skin cancers and things like that. But we do need to recognize and culturally, I think there needs to be a a shift in the understanding that certain levels of sunlight at certain times is really healthy for you and you actually need it. (laughs) Do you know Lyle Hamilton? Yeah. Yeah. So he actually talks about this. I've, I've read a book on him. It's real fascinating. He doesn't wear sunscreen. Doesn't wear sunglasses. Yeah. And I haven't looked into like what times of the day he goes out, but he thoroughly thinks, rightly or wrongly, that our body has adapted across time with evolution to tolerate the sun and our eyes to tolerate sunlight. Yeah. And I, I agree with him to the point, like you, like you said, there is a level, but that's a level with everything where it's probably going to be non-advantageous and probably have a detrimental effect. Yeah, like if you're going out and getting roasted every day. Yeah, then, like that's not good. Yeah. But if you're, if you're waking up going out in that morning sun, which isn't going to often burn you, or the late afternoon sun, mm. all you're doing is just avoiding that direct middle day where it is likely to cause those effects. You could probably get away with never wearing sunscreen or sunglasses. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Like, and yeah, I think sunglasses... I heard something about... I'm going to have to cross-reference this as well, mm. but how there's certain mechanisms in the eyes that actually need sunlight to trigger it. And it makes sense that our eyes have been... Like, you obviously don't... Again, don't go out in midday and stare at the sun. Mm-mm. But you can handle a fair bit of sunlight exposure. And I think if we're constantly covering ourselves up with these things, if you know, if we're constantly wearing sunglasses or wearing this thick sunscreen or wearing clothes to protect us, if we never get that exposure, then our bodies... We won't give our bodies a, ta- a, a chance to adapt to it. Um, but also it's obviously shown that sunlight exposure is critical for vitamin D production in the body Mm. and probably plenty of other processes that we haven't even studied yet. Um, but vitamin D is a super important one. We'll put in, again, let's just make it super simple. If we weren't supposed to have the sun, we would already be dead. Yeah. This wouldn't be a thing. We wouldn't be having this podcast. Yeah. So, and it's worth noting that different people have different 
risks of, mm. of you know of having detrimental effects from too much sun exposure like the paler your skin the less melanin is in your skin which means you're more likely more likely to get burnt and more likely to get damaged and more likely to get skin cancer and vice versa obviously the darker your skin is the more melanin and the less risk but at the same time you know small small or I guess appropriate amount of exposure at the right times can be super important for your health. And they've actually found that a lack of vitamin D, so vitamin D uh, insufficiency is heavily uh, linked to skin skin cancer as well. So you can't just avoid the sun and avoid all skin cancers. And and even all the uh, skin experts will say as well that you can get these melanomas or these skin issues in areas that usually never get the sun anyway, like your your bum cheeks or yeah. like well for maybe that's different now but <laughs> yeah well, I mean, it's it's still like a spot that's getting it's like anything can metastasize and or, or move from a certain spot yeah. that it was caused right yeah, so yeah, true don't be surprised if anything sort of shows up elsewhere same as we've talked about like how breathing can show up somewhere or, or movement habits can then obviously mm. cause something to get injured like it, that's the way the body works it's mm. sort of it's all one. It's all a system. It's, it's system. one system that is trying to give you a message, and it just gives you a message, however it can figure out how to. So yeah, exactly. So I'm sure we could probably chat about sunlight for a full podcast as well. Yeah. We'll put that yeah. on the list. It's eh? a good thing. <laughs> Tom and I are thinking of doing a whole uh, series of podcasts on, on different interest areas. So I think that could be a. Mm. We'll, I reckon it'd be a, a bit of a hit. If anyone's yeah. keen, let us know because we have a few interest areas and. Like we like sitting here talking about them. They're pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, it's good fun. Um, so we'll get into the benefits of good sleep. We'll talk about the good news first, and then maybe the bad news <laughs> afterwards. Um, but I've sort of in in the post I did yesterday in the graphic, we separated between physical and mental, and obviously you can't really separate physical and mental because they're again, it's a system of systems, and they're all uh, extremely interlinked and really inseparable but um for the purpose of the of potties Mm. and graphics it can be helpful to separate them but Mm. mentally uh we know that good sleep is heavily linked with better cognition and memory and so i think yeah it was matthew walker who was talking about how people have this view of sleep like it's just rest or it's a time where your brain shuts off for a while but actually it's a very active process and some brain areas are even more active during sleep than during wakefulness mm. and so a lot of that is to do with you know you, you'd learn a bunch of things during the day for instance and or you have all these experiences and then sleep is the uh is the time where a lot of those memories and experiences and learnings uh are shifted into more like a long-term memory hey yeah so it's kind of like a really cool analogy that i often use with people is it's like um cray crafting like if you have a chunk of clay you just put onto the wheel, there's not a lot of, there's nothing there. It's just a lot of information. So that's all the information you've taken in during the day. And then what starts to happen is if my goal or objective is to make a vase or a vase, however you want to say it, mm-hmm. I'm going to start cutting off sections of it. And that's what your brain does by pruning. It prunes off information that it deems is not useful or was not, there wasn't an intent to learn it. There was no need to learn it. So I'm just going to get rid of it. It was a waste of information. Yeah. It's kind of like saying like, I'll walk out of here and I won't remember the color of the books that are on your shelf because to mm. me it's not important. I don't mm. have any reason to. And then I'll start to finely tune parts of that vase. And then I'll repeat that process, which is the sleep cycle every 90 minutes of chunk, like chomp that stuff off, craft, chunk, 
craft. And that's how you start to then solidify memory and information within your sleep cycles. Yeah. yeah. Which is really cool because it just means that yes, people have gone out and figured that out. And I really like that. Mm. Because then we don't have to study it. Someone else has. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Then there's there's heaps of good research on sleep. And um, Matthew Walker's fortunately done a great job of distilling it all into that book or mm. at least most of the most of it all the mm. important stuff but it's also mentally it's also linked to obviously productivity and focus and creativity and problem solving and even mood and emotional control and so all of these things are obviously very very important for quality of life and you know success at work and healthy relationships and all of these things like if you're not if you're in a bad mood and you can't control your emotions and you can't focus then good luck having a healthy relationship or a friendship good luck doing much good luck doing much at all and i suppose like it's probably useful for people to know so when you start to get sort of sleep deprived or you haven't had as good quality sleep the sort of governing uh, part of your brain in the body this prefrontal cortex it doesn't switch off. It just downregulates a lot, which means that your deeper sort of more emotive centers or your reptilian brain where, you know, you're breathing, eating, all the basic stuff to keep you alive becomes more depressant. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, that whole area of the brain is where your amygdala is, which fires yeah. up with fear. So if you don't have a good communication between your big, smart frontal uh, cortex, which is what we have as humans and we're very lucky to have evolved it, and your deep emotive center then all of a sudden everything else becomes harder in life. So, yeah. for example, you can't read people's faces as well. So you can't judge if someone is smiling at you or not smiling, which does make it hard to interact with people. You can't. Would it be to that extreme? Would it to yep. you can't even judge pro- like the you, smiling and not yeah, smiling. Yeah, you, you can't. Right. You can't interpret people's faces. Yeah. Um, which is there's science on it, which is really weird. Yeah. So wow. like you could be walking past the street, and I. So I think a lot of people will then intuitively kind of sense is someone dangerous or not, mm. right? Given the don't read a book by its cover or judge a book by its cover, but you get those little intuitive senses that yeah. goes out the window because you can't interpret all the information in real time. You act more emotively. And so, and you'd be much more likely to be in that fear response, which is a stress response, Correct. which would so when make some... you less socially <laughs> inept. In the, yeah, so more socially inept. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. so what, the, a good example is if you're in a meeting and someone is saying something to you and you can't tell whether they're having a slight at you or a dig or if they're just generally curious, you might act in a way that is a bit more aggressive or defensive. Yes. And then that's going to kickstart its own sort of sequelae of problems with that person or within the team environment. And it could honestly be as simple as you just haven't slept, so parts of your brain aren't functioning as optimally as they could be. Yeah. And that becomes very important working in a team environment and, like you said, having friends and talking to them. Because if you can't understand those things, then interacting with people becomes incredibly difficult. Yeah. That's interesting. I've found it myself where... I think it was especially since learning about this stuff with sleep um, and irritability. Like it's it's known, obviously, oh, if a, if a toddler or a baby hasn't slept well and they're crying or they're being, you know, little... <laughs> little annoying shits. humans. <laughs> um, it's like, oh, yeah, he didn't sleep well last night and it's just known. And then people for some reason don't apply that to themselves as much. But I've started I've started noticing that if I have, you know, been up really late for some reason, it doesn't really happen much lately, but I'd notice, say I go to a, a wedding or something like that, I'm up really late, obviously, you know, a bit of alcohol, stuff like that. And then the next day, 
things will start annoying me that I will then consciously go that wouldn't that shouldn't annoy me or like this is such a this is such a not a big deal and I guess I, because I'm more aware of it I go oh it's because I didn't sleep well last night and I can try and uh, I can try and sort of rein in that but I'd I'd have a tendency to like sort of not snap at people but to just be a lot more short a lot more less tolerant for anything well, and then I'd be like oh it's because I didn't sleep well last night a really good point there like you said you can consciously know that's happening but it's really hard to stop yeah and it really simplifies the mind can't like outsmart the mind yeah like we we know this stuff and this is one of probably the detriments of having such a good consciousness as human beings. We think we can outsmart ourselves. That's why a lot of people think I can live without sleep. You can't outsmart the mind and the only way to do it is for your body to sort of be integrated into how you approach it. So mm-hmm. for example, in this case, your body needs sleep. So you need sleep. Yeah. Right? You can try and outsmart it as much as you want. You can go, want, oh, yeah, yeah I'm going to be nice, but then deep down it's going like, yeah, it's it just, irritating it, me. <laughs> yeah, there's a specific sort of spot, like that medial prefrontal cortex just sitting right here. When it switches off, it is a lot harder. Yeah. So just go get a good sleep. Go get sleep. Yeah. Like don't ever, if you have an exam the next day or you know you have something important coming up, go sleep. Yeah. If you're getting a vaccination, go sleep. Yeah. Go sleep three days prior to the vaccination. <laughs> It'll be really good for your immune system. Yeah. Actually, I, I was really happy that I yeah, that, that all of this was on my health podcast when I was at uni because there was people before exams pulling all-nighters all around me. And all I would do is I would set myself, I would set myself a bedtime. I would work as much as I could up until that bedtime. But then I was like, I'm not, um, I'm not deprioritizing my sleep because I know that's going to be the best thing. And maybe I studied less than other people, but I did quite well on the exams because I feel because I just made sure that I had enough sleep. And then everything that I did learn was then stored properly and then able to be accurately, you know, spat out (laughs) during the exam. It's probably a similar story. I don't know how well my sleep was at the time going through both the university degrees, but I would count, like, there's less than a handful of times that I'd stayed up to, like, midnight to ever study. Yeah. Like, ever. And it's mostly because it hits, like, 9 o'clock. I'm like, no, I'm done. Yeah. This is over. Just don't don't care. Past then, I can't even focus. No. And I don't want to either. I'm like, I'd just rather go to bed. Yeah. So, I just go to bed. And, like... And you just trust that it'll be better. Well, I mean, if you're studying so intently the night before, which is, like, there's some things you'll pick up for sure that will be retained in short-term memory... I started looking at it in my second semester of my first year of uni that I might as well learn it, not try to cram it in, just like learn it. Yeah. And the more that you try to integrate it into the practices of life and the way you're doing things, obviously you improve with time. But I always found that was an easy way to learn the stuff. Mm. Just like, okay, where's it applicable? I'm just going to remember it because I can apply it as much as possible. Yeah. Just, I just didn't cram. Just yeah. don't cram. It's just not something I could ever do. Just don't cram. No. And actually, he, Matthew Walker mentions that in his TED Talk where they did a study on all-nighters where they yeah, they got a group to get an eight-hour sleep and then a group to get to essentially have no sleep. And then they got them to learn a bunch of different, you know, a bunch of different a list of different things that they were having to learn. I actually don't know what the details were, but they found that the people who got no sleep had a 40% reduction in their ability to learn or a 40% less it's like memory worse score yeah. on, on whatever the test they had. And that is essentially the difference between 
doing really well on an exam or failing. <laughs> and to like further up within that book, they do speak about studies that are like eight hours of sleep, six hours of sleep, four hours of sleep. Yeah. And the eight hours of sleep group always perform better on these tasks. So yeah. there are different, like there is a few like cognitive processing, memory recall, um, and, and a ton of other like just mental processing things that they've done, whether it's like computer tests or like handwritten stuff. Mm. And up until like a point, the more sleep you get, the better it is to learn stuff. So if you sleep before you try and learn something and sleep after, that's the best thing you could ever do. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. it's, if you're missing sleep on either side of it, it's not good. If you're missing sleep three days after you're trying to learn something, it's also not ideal. Yeah. Like it's, it's amazing how much of our brain power goes to just sort of solidifying that information days after we even try to learn the fact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, it encompasses that we don't really learn anything at the time of reading it often it's often in the background where you sort of you go away from it and let the creativity flow and let everything sort of solidify that you really do learn stuff yeah i think that's a very important point for people you you can't cram everything into a day and i think most people who have ever gone through university or tafe or anything know that you can't sit down and study all day and not feel drained yeah there's only so much that's going in yeah so little chunks very intent little chunks rest repeat cycle which is what we're speaking about with work, will be far more productive than just smashing yourself yeah. for like eight hours straight. And exercise. And mm. yeah, you know, movement and exercise and breathe. And pretty much everything. Like you you know, you can't be exercising intensely all day and you don't say you do do some intense exercise or some intense motor learning, um, you know, like skill based learning, you're not actually gonna get your biggest results during the period of training you're going to get it in the period of rest and sleep when your body is adapting to that and i guess that brings us to the physical benefits of one of the one of the big physical benefits benefits of good sleep is a a big improvement in motor learning Mm. and you know quote unquote muscle memory which i'm i'm fairly sure do you remember the study about the piano keys they were like teaching a, a sort of piano sequence to people and they only allowed them X amount of practice, which was sort of generally not enough practice to get it all right. And then they had a sleep and then the next day they were able to... Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. So it's like a lot of the, the analogies they have, I, just, I sort of just take it and try to make my own analogy out of yeah. it. And effectively, when you're trying to learn any skill, often it's you're getting a lot of feedback. So whether that's internal, external cueing and obviously results-driven stuff, like if I'm shooting a basketball, basketball goes in the hoop or not. Yeah. I know if I've succeeded. Your brain does a lot of like the mathematical equations in the background, which are like physics, like speed of ball, tracking, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that we can't consciously comprehend. So as you're doing it, you're getting all this data in. When you go to sleep, that is when your brain can, again, take the useful information, integrate it, and sort of link it from different areas of the brain, depending on the type of sleep you're in. Mm-hmm. And then go, okay, when I wake up, I'm going to come back to the same problem, and often you'll perform it better, okay? Providing you've had the adequate rest, obviously, nutrition, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And the reason is that your body has now sort of linked better with the brain, and it's come back going, oh, I get this pattern now. I, I figured it out. That's why people get told to sleep on a problem. Because the viewpoint mm. that you see it from is different because the brain has done something, whether it's learning or 
unlearned, like not unlearned, but like just forgotten the useless pieces of information. Yeah. Same with the piano. It's just a pattern sequence. Yeah. And you will learn it better if you've had adequate sleep and you allow your body to kind of think about it in the background. Yeah. And you come back to it and you go, oh, something clicks. And then, and I found that a lot. Oh, it's like myself. you're trying to remember a name, right? Like yeah. you sit there going, I can't remember that person's name. Four hours later, I got it. That's it. And then it's clicked and, and it's then just... that's stored. Mm. Yeah. Um, and then other other physical benefits include... Immune function, um, appetite regulation was an interesting one. How Leptin and ghrelin. Yeah. Sneaky little buggers. So if you sleep really well and your appetite is regulated to, you know, your, I guess, homeostatic point. And I've definitely found as well, personally, that if I'm underslept and I go shopping <laughs> for groceries, I'm reaching, I'm it's, starting to reach for... All sorts the, of food. Yeah. Because you just feel like it. And then I've really noticed that obviously there's other things that play into it, like stress and, and movement and marketing. But I've found that in other times where I'm very well slept and I've had good exercise and I'm you know feeling really productive, if I go for a grocery shop, then I just get in, I get all the things that I need. I'm not even, I don't even, I'm not even tempted at all by anything that's there. So it's a lot of it's to do, yeah, part of it's to do with the marketing and what's available but a big part of it is just that your appetite is regulated by these pillars of health and sleep seems to be very involved in that and it's kind of again this is sort of why we probably touch on these points a lot we think we seem to think that good things sort of make good things happen and they really do because if you look at it if mouth breathing precipitates mouth breathing nose breathing precipitates nose breathing like okay that's well i'm gonna pick nose right if i'm gonna start to walk around in bare feet I'm probably going to get stronger walking around in bare feet. Mm. And that has, again, a sequelae layer of effects. If I start to sleep well, I'll start to regulate it and I'll probably want to exercise because I've slept well. You're on energy. And, and then if I exercise, I'll sleep better. And then I'll go, okay, I feel, I'm feeling a bit healthier. I'm going to probably pick a healthier option because somewhere in here intuitively, you know which is the healthier option. Is it going to be the hot chips or is it going to be the salad? <laughs> now, salad by itself, probably not enough food, but like the point is yeah. the healthier option is more appealing because you're living this lifestyle from all aspects. Mm. So psychologically, mm. physically, you're getting the sleep in. You will start making better decisions what feels like automatically because the system in the background is doing what it should and getting the movement nutrition, the sleep nutrition yeah. that it needs. And then it suddenly it's not so much about willpower as it is about you're just on auto this healthy autopilot. Mm. And the I think it's important to recognize that you can go on and off this healthy autopilot depending on what what happens in your lifestyle. And so, you know, there's I've I guess I would say most of my time is spelt, spent on the healthy autopilot, which is great because I've had a lot of time to include different practices in my life. But there are certainly times where I'll notice for like a good week that I've been off that autopilot and whether it's to do with sleep or, you know, had a, a really late night on the weekend that uh, for whatever reason that then threw off my sleep cycles and I had, you know, then I started having too much coffee. Say I had too much coffee the next day, which then disrupts my sleep for that night, which then makes me more likely to want to have more coffee the next day. And then I start, and I notice oh, I'm in this cycle and now the food at the grocery store is a lot more tempting and I'll start, you know, mm. having little treats and feeling like I need snacks all throughout the day or, or whatever, or I'm just less focused and less productive. And then the key thing is just the awareness. It's not bad luck. It's not any of this. It's just literally, oh, I've slipped off on this and this. And if I get back on top of that, then I know that I'll be back on the autopilot. It's not about fighting against 
this, oh, I really want that treat. And, you know, I've just got to be a good person and not have the treat. But it's like, how can I not even want the treat? <laughs> exactly. And which compounds the effect with the willpower aspect. Yeah. If your prefrontal cortex switches off, like it does with a lack of sleep, the willpower is automatically less. Yeah, yeah, so, true. So your natural temptation plus the lack of willpower is going to be, oh, well, I'm just going to go eat the bad food yeah. or the food that I know is not as good for me. Yeah. So again, if you set things up to function better, they will function better. It, yeah. And like to change into that like lifestyle, of that, as you, it, it sort of takes a few years really to build certain habits. Don't expect just to overnight change everything that you do to get there. But yeah. It, you can make life a hell of a lot easier for those things. Absolutely. Might as well. Might as well. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then the other benefits, which is interesting, is obviously exercise and sports performance and recovery. And that's coming into the limelight a lot more. I believe there's sleep experts working with like the biggest sports teams now. That's re- the, the, those big sports teams, which is a huge business, uh, have a lot of interest in well, keeping well, sports recovery is a huge business yeah. it's a huge financial market huge. Like you've got all sorts of like hot cold baths you've got compression socks compression like leggings to wear mm. in planes like it's all there now it's not to say that any of those things like foam rollers and trigger point balls and all of that are good or bad or anything but the most important factor for recovery will be sleep yeah and if you don't get a, a good night's sleep on a regular basis almost everything afterwards is trying to band-aid that yeah so if you want to start off with a really good foundation, sleep is the key. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then whatever else you need to do for the additional, because obviously sports, for example, put a lot of stress on the body. Great. Utilize them, but don't use them instead of sleeping. Yeah. It, 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 it's not going to work. It can't work. Yeah. It, it, they can't have as many physiological processes as sleep. Yeah. Sleep is just too evolutionarily inbuilt for it. It's the mother of recovery. Yes. Yeah. 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 It is. It's there for a reason. Yeah. It's our natural recovery, basically. We, mm. we can't, we can't uh, go without it. And then that obviously ties into wound and injury healing as well. And yeah, there's studies that show a much, much improved wound healing, or I guess you, whichever way you look at much, much decreased wound healing and injury healing from a lack of sleep and therefore yeah, and like you could physical say normal or optimal healing with optimal sleep. Mm. And... Yeah, it's, I mean... I suppose, like, and if you look at how injuries occur, so there are some good research that's come out that says, like, game speed changes can affect injury in, mm. in like, AFL, football, etc. right? If you can't keep up with the game speed because you're exhausted, because you just haven't slept, you're probably going to precipitate an injury. Yeah. Right? So, then all of a sudden, how, do you, how can you mitigate it, right? Sleep, mm. right? Or, I got injured because I did something silly in the game, which I wouldn't normally do. Why? Because I was exhausted. Well, did you sleep? Like, you can... You, the foundation should always be back to how did you sleep in, like, the day before and, like, the week prior? And if you haven't been sleeping well, it doesn't mean it's a cause and effect. It just means it's one of those factors that is something that should be addressed, particularly in the world of, like, these multi-million dollar athletes, which is a huge market business, rightfully or wrongfully. Everyone will have their opinion on that. <laughs> yeah. But, like, it's a huge business. And... All a lot of people just don't get the simple basic stuff right, like we you've spoken about, like I speak about, and sleeping is probably the mother of all of it. Mm. Work forward from there. So, yeah. So, 
I guess, well, we've sort of talked about a little bit of the consequences of poor sleep, but we've got some more bad news. <laughs> oh, not the bad news. <laughs> um, there's good news coming, I swear. Good, yes, how, exactly. how to sleep better, We're going to follow it up with mm. just more, more good news. So mentally, there's a big link between Alzheimer's dementia and cognitive decline and poor sleep. So there was another TED Talk. I can't remember the guy's name, but... Um, he talks about the the obviously there's a waste removal system in the body called the lymphatic system and then that lymphatic system doesn't work in the same way in the brain um, but there's something called the glymphatic system where essentially during sleep the brain is flooded with cerebrospinal fluid which then acts as the waste removal service of the brain and one of the waste products that the um, this cerebrospinal fluid, CSF, removes is amyloid beta plaques. And those plaques are heavily linked, the buildup of those plaques are heavily linked to Alzheimer's. Yeah. And again, it, it goes to show across many years of sleeping less or having less quality of sleep, that something like that can be an effect. Now, that's something that's become pretty well known now within the sleep research community. And you'll probably find across the next few years, there'll be other things that are strongly linked even more so with it. Like we know that cardiovascular disease can be linked with sleep and we, we can talk about all the other things as well. But when you look at it across the lifespan, like if you're sleeping there six hours a night regularly and you're putting yourself at more of a risk of Alzheimer's or dementia, then the obvious answer is how can I prevent it before it happens or mitigate that effect would mm-hmm. be to sleep right so then it's about trying to figure out how you can help your sleep afterwards yeah and that and that's going to go with like again if you have injuries you're going to sleep if you have any other health conditions sleeping more it seems that sleep is highly linked to a lot of problems like a lot of cancers a lot of all these other things as well mm. and if we, if we can help people mitigate that and have more days of quality like life then if you're someone who wants to work for a long time, then you'll be able to work longer because you are having a better quality of life. If you're someone who really enjoys hanging out with friends or family, then you'll probably do that for longer if you just sleep. Mm. It's not, I've got to do it now because I'm going to die young yeah. or anything. It's just like, You'll die young if you don't yeah, sleep. Like and you, so. so enjoy the longer quality of life and have less of these neurological or physical um, mm. impairments. And speaking of physical impairments as a consequence of poor sleep, the... So, cardiovascular disease, so heart attacks and strokes and things like that are highly linked with poor sleep, or poor sleep is linked with those. And an interesting stat from daylight saving research on daylight savings is that there's a 24% increase in heart attacks when we lose sleep, when we lose an hour of sleep to daylight savings with the changeover. Queensland, mm. <laughs> where we are. Yeah doesn't do it so, so live in queensland everybody yeah, it's everyone safe for you move to queensland um but then they also see a 21 21 percent decrease when people gain an hour of sleep when the clocks turn back and i do that stat is pretty crazy hey when you when you think about it and i'm like oh surely like one hour of sleep wouldn't be you know enough to trigger that but i think what's interesting is that Obviously, there's certain amounts of heart attacks all throughout the year, right? Yeah. And that's going to be depending... Obviously, it, it seems to be somewhat dependent on how much sleep people are getting. 
and the only time that the whole population of an area all collectively gets an hour less sleep or an hour more sleep is in daylight savings. And then at those points, you see those those big spikes or big reductions in the rates of those things. And it's crazy, right? It's, it's hugely crazy. indicative of how important sleep is. Yeah. And I think one of the other things he linked in there was like, there are more car crashes on the days that people have had like Yeah, less he reckons sleep. it's similar, a similar yeah. increase and decrease and suicides. Yeah, and like... When you look into the science, they start to make sense of it. It sounds cooler as just a statistic, right? It's like, holy dooly. (laughs) But it does make logical, physiological sense as well. So when people look at like daylight savings, I mean, I like that Queensland doesn't do it. I quite like the setup. But it's fascinating that one hour of sleep can be that impactful. And Mm. I think we spoke about earlier, sort of to go back to the topic that, you know, if you have six hours of sleep in like a week period, your performance on cognitive tests is the equivalent of someone who's like legally drunk. Mm. Now, a lot of people probably sleep six hours a day as a norm and say, I can function on six. You can function on six, but you're not functioning optimally. And if you are functioning like someone who's legally drunk, like that's crazy. Like to me, that is a statistic that's like, well, no wonder people are having car crashes potentially or doing all these other things because certain body regulation and processes just isn't happening. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it is one of those things like now these days, if someone, because of all this research that's come out, if someone's like, oh yeah, I get by on five hours a night and I just do it, it's like, you could actually be really endangering yourself and other people on the road if you're driving anywhere. Yeah. And, you know. I wonder if that'll ever become like a regulation. Smack guilt trip. Yeah. <laughs> oh, because I shouldn't be driving. Yeah. Just don't drive. Remind me not to drive when <laughs> you're on the road. Um, and then, yeah, other physical detriments. So, from a reproductive health point of view, uh, Matt Walker talks about the... He actually leads with this in his TED Talk. He goes, I want to talk about testicles. <laughs> um, testicles. <laughs> because an interesting thing... Well, obviously, most most people care a lot about their reproductive health and status and the size of their testicles if they're, if they're a man, to a degree. <laughs> yes, it's just, yeah, look, there are a few people out there who do. It's all about testy size. Yeah, right? man. No. <laughs> Um, but apparently men who sleep five hours a night have significantly smaller testicles than men who sleep seven hours a night. Mm. And men who routinely sleep four to five hours a night have levels of testosterone that are similar to that of someone who is 10 years older than them. Which is not optimal if you're like a 20, 30 year old and you're trying to have children. Yeah. Or if you're just trying to have a vital, you know, have good energy and vitality Mm. and, you know, all of that stuff that testosterone is important for. Yeah. And I think testosterone is very useful for a lot of body functions. The same way within the male body, we need estrogen as well. Mm. Like you need both of them to function. And if you're affecting one, that drastically it might actually explain why a lot of people do have problems having children mm. like you're absolutely potentially just missing out on sleep and it's making both partners just a little bit less uh, likely to be reproductive so yeah well and infertility rates are skyrocketing mm. in modern times and just as our sleep rates are declining yeah fancy ah, that fancy fancy that <laughs> plus i guess stress plus nutrition and all of these well, things of course but it's well he, here's probably my biggest line that i took away from matt Walker's book, and this is mostly because, as you know, I'm a breathing nerd. Most of the issues we've ever come across with sleep are linked to an overactive sympathetic nervous system. Mm. It's the strongest line in in the whole book for me personally, because if you then look at, okay, if I'm not sleeping well and it's linked to that side of my nervous system, 
you and I both know the importance of the parasympathetic nervous system. And then it's like, I link straight away to my brain. Well, that's where I link breathing to. And we can talk about that a bit on, but it's just like, wow, people are sleeping in more stressed states. Quality of sleep is less. That then has a sequelae effect. And again, once or twice might not be so much of a problem, but if you average 330 days out of your year having a poor sleep, times that by 30 years of being alive, that's a lot of poor sleep. And you can never get it back because it's not like sleep debt can't be repaid. Mm, that's right. Like you can yeah. try to minimize the effects the following day by having like a nap, but you can never get back the sleep that you've lost, which is pretty wild <laughs> to think about. Yeah. Like it's like it's gone. Yeah, because we don't, evolution hasn't inbuilt a sleep debt mechanism because we've never had to go without sleep. We're, no. we're running this big experiment on the population with all of these artificial lights and all of these things that interrupt our sleep or affect the sleep quality by going, oh, what happens to organisms when they're chronically underslept? And, and now we're starting to find out all of them. And there is probably not one aspect of your health that isn't affected by lack of sleep. Yeah. And that's concerning, even given like, you know, the fact that we know all the physical and mental now effects of it. Like it's, it is kind of concerning. Mm, very. Yeah. <laughs> especially, yeah, especially considering the culture around sleep mm. in, I mean, even in the health field, even in the medical field, the culture around sleep is, well, would they just do long, and obviously there's a, pl- Someone has to work overnight at hospitals, mm. but there is a big culture in the medical fields uh, and in hospitals about you know using a lack of sleep as like a, a token, uh, I guess a sign that you're a really hard worker and that you're a good doctor because mm. oh, I slept only two hours because I'm working, yeah. looking after all these patients. But yeah, even in that field that's supposed to be about health, they're not acting with what they're saying. Yeah. Like, and, and we know... Or it hasn't disseminated through that culture. That there are countries in the world that have classified shift work as carcinogenic, mm. which is huge because that's cancer-causing and that's not what we want for people. Yeah. Unfortunately, we do have people who do those jobs and we need them to within society. It's just the current way it's built. It doesn't mean that we can't help optimize their sleep capacity or help change some of the regulatory rules around what they do to help them sleep better. Mm-hmm. Well, whilst it is a necessity, it doesn't mean that we can't better it. That's yeah. probably the key there. Like there's, there's always something we can do to try and make it a bit easier for those people who do go into those roles for whatever reason. Exactly. And the the link with cancer and and it you know not shift nighttime shift work being a probable carcinogen. Uh, they did a study on just a, not even a full night of no sleep, but a four-hour sleep reduced uh, natural killer cell. I think it's oh natural killer cell count or activity in the blood. Um, There's both or both. So natural killer cells are basically these cells in your body that fight off against unwanted, you know, external pathogens or internal. Mm-hmm things going on like cancer and so if their activity is reduced you're much more likely to get infections and um you know sicknesses and cancer Mm. and so that's only a one four hour sleep and so imagine you know like you said even a six hour sleep or a five hour sleep for years and years and years consistently your immune immune system's shot and i think i think where the stat came was like it's like a 
you said 40%, like there's like a 70% decrease in the other one. So like if you have less activity and you have like less of them in like one, like four hour sleep cycle, right? Then you do that the next day. Like it's not getting any better. Like it's no. not coming back up. And one of the possible issues that why people have such strong and adverse reactions to vaccines particularly is that they're not having good sleep leading up to it. So their body's immune system isn't in its optimal prime state to then fight off the vaccine, which is effectively some form of the, a virus to mm. help your body then fight it. So everyone's having these really bad effects. Mm. It would be very interesting to know what people's sleep quality is before going into having that. Yeah, Because the, be. the data suggests roughly that you want to have three good nights of quality sleep prior and then go have your vaccine shot. It means that the vaccine becomes more effective because the body is in a more prime state to utilize mm. it. Mm. And you're probably not going to have as many adverse reactions you're still going to react to it because it is a virus but you won't have as strong a, at least that's what the data seems to suggest and again yeah. it makes sense when you understand what's happening with those t-cells makes a lot of sense mm. yeah the i was having this chat with someone about the other day about i mean it's pro- actually we should probably do a whole podcast on immune function and stuff but uh, how people who have these big physical symptoms like you know, fever and um, I guess to a virus, let's just talk mm. about a virus, for instance, like the flu. Um, all of these big physical symptoms that are like, I guess, more systemic where the body's heating up and they're getting all these like a huge cough and things like that. Uh, the physical manifestations that the inner workings of the immune system with the natural killer cells and all of these things going on with antibodies aren't strong enough and so the body's having to overcompensate with bigger physical symptoms mm. to um, try and help. But whereas if you're, if you're natural killer cells and uh, all of these things and were working well within the immune system in the blood, then you wouldn't need as much of the overt physical symptoms yeah. and to, like, to fight it off. And that's like the thing, like, you know, Wim Hof probably is a great example of when they put... Like in, inject stuff into him and E. coli, mm. and then all of a sudden his body doesn't have a like a physical overt reaction. He's just constantly he's doing his breathing, etc., yeah. etc. Like he can overwrite some of the response. Your body is very much like it was when it was a child. Back to your your analogy and point earlier, the child if they're restless and they're irritable, they're probably having a good night's sleep. We know that babies cry a lot. It's part of what babies do. And th- why do they cry? They have no words to put to anything. Mm. So they're feeling hunger or like lack of connection or lack of sleep. So they will cry. They have nothing else to do. Your body's the same thing when you're an adult. It doesn't know what to do. You can't put words to it. I'm just going to react. I'm just going to deal with it because I. a lot of people don't have the interceptive capacity to feel how they feel physically, let alone like well, none of us really know. Oh, my, I can't tell you how many cells are going on at the moment like how many t-cells are chilling out in there but if i if i know at least that i can sleep and i can build up that army of you know things that are going to help me and then i go get a vax or whatever and i have a better chance besides the fact that i know the physical effects there's also the potential placebo effect of thinking i'm going to feel better Mm, because i've mm -hmm. had it so then all of a sudden my physical body and my like frontal like cortex are conceptualizing this positive frame which means I'm probably more likely to feel better afterwards. Yeah, yeah, which is which is huge. Wait. The power of belief. It's, Honestly, it's it is tied huge. into every 
We should do a whole body on that yeah, too. Yeah, because like, well, and it is. It's, it's very tied important. into every research study on any kind of medical intervention is accounting for the placebo effect because it is such a powerful effect. And, and I don't know if I said it in our last podcast together, but like the therapeutic alliance is like the huge, a huge, huge thing within physio EP in terms of how well someone will respond, right? More so than anything I physically do or make you do as an exercise. If you trust me and trust what I'm saying, it's more likely to have a positive effect. Mm. Now, if I trust my body and then the doctor tells me the same thing and I trust the doctor, there is a, a greater sense of like comfort or warmth that's going to be there. And that will just naturally start to have those effects down to the cellular level. Mm. And it will facilitate you know, a healthier internal being. Yeah, yeah. I wonder, as a... As a side note here, with the placebo and nocebo effect, like last week we did our podcast all about stress and how your perception of stress and how your beliefs around stress actually affects how stress influence or affects you. So if you believe that stress is bad for you and you have a lot of stress in your life, then you're much more likely to die from anything, basically, all yep. cause mortality. Seems about right. But apparently, if you do have stress in your life... Um, high stress in your life, but you don't believe that it's bad for you and that a lot of that it's, and you know, especially in cases where it's tied to caring for others or you, you do have strong relationships, um, you don't have an increased risk of dying. And in fact, it's even protective. And so this, you know, obviously stress is good for us in, in certain doses, but apparently your perception around whether stress is bad for you changes how much it actually affects you i mean that's not i mean it's it, not it's surprising re- it's not surprising it's really cool though but i wonder how much that would apply to sleep like say someone's like oh they they, they are mm. of that opinion like oh i do really well on four hours sleep and they've just tr- like not tricked themselves but like they they believe that so strongly i wonder whether they'd be able to get away with it better where versus someone who gets four hours of sleep a night but is really stressed out about it and really um, thinks it's bad for them and, and all of that. I'd say this is... I, I, you would have to logically assume there would be a point that is probably useful to, except there'd have to be a capping point, right? Mm. Like, if you don't sleep, you die. So yeah. at, no matter how much your willpower is about, I don't need to sleep, eventually you just die. Yeah, so there yeah. would have to be some form of like point. Yeah, uh, threshold. And, and it's probably good for people to know that like the average for the adult to sleep, that seven to nine hours is an average. Mm. Like not everyone is going to sleep smack on eight hours, yeah. right? Not everyone needs to sleep as much as someone else. There are people who function through testing very well to that five and a half to six hours a night of sleep. Like there mm. are those people who are genetically that way. The issue is it is, seems that it's like less than 1% of the population, mm-hmm. which is something yeah. that people need to like premise with. And one of the big issues is people don't experience what it's like to have a good night's sleep. They haven't actually had the succession of good nights to go, man, this feels amazing. Yeah, but, so they think they feel fine. Yeah, but when you do it and when you get to go through it, you soon realize how good it feels. And it was a great question posed to me two years ago from an entrepreneur mentor who asked like how do you teach someone to sleep well and i was like that's a great question like what is it like and that's probably helped kickstart me further down the career back to the original question you asked as to why i'm interested because it's a it's a great question there's Mm. so much you could do but how could you go about doing it systematically or how could you help someone sleep and 
Like once you once you get there and you actually feel the good night's sleep, you really don't want to go back. Yeah, exactly. And I think what's important, I guess, with especially when talking about all these all these consequences of poor sleep and you know increased risk of every disease, basically, mm. is just to is just to really emphasize that if you have a night of poor sleep here and there, don't beat yourself up. Nah. Because this is where we the placebo and nocebo effect comes in. It's like, I, and I used to do this when I first started listening and understanding more about the importance of sleep. I'd be so, so strict with, you know, everything, all my sleep practices. And then if I didn't get to sleep on time or if I didn't wake up well or something like that, I'd, I'd like not... Yeah, I'd pretty much beat myself up. I'd be like, oh, God. Like, and then I realized that that wasn't helping. That was just getting my day off. Like if I snoozed, for instance, which is a mm. classic thing for me, which makes me feel groggy in the morning, and most people do because it's a, a sleep inertia thing, um, which we'll chat about in a sec. But um, you know, if I snoozed, I'd be like, oh, like, you know, I'd be really upset with myself. And mm. then I've just realized, like, or if you stay up too late, then you're like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And you, you start like worrying about it. But there's just no point. Just accept that, okay, I did that and then go, how do I get an even better sleep tonight? And just don't don't get too stressed about it because that's going to make all of it worse. <laughs> I, I, I probably have conceptualized it slightly differently, um, which is interesting. So I've created a framework around what I think I need to do t- to sleep well, right? Mm-hmm. And I've habit stacked my way to get to that point. I don't do everything every night the same way. I do a lot of it most of the time. And it just helps me initiate like a better wake up and a better sleep. Now, do I feel bad about not doing it? No. Yeah. No. What I have found is that I, if I do the things that I like to do and, and sets myself up for a good night's sleep, I know the next morning I've slept really well. Like I, it feels good. I mean, I check my sleep score and my aura ring and everything and like they co-align. And I just think about what is it that I did last night? Okay, it feels good. And I didn't know the difference between it until I... I experimented with and like if i just don't do this and this how do i feel the next day now whether mm. it's placebo or not i'm like oh i don't feel quite as good i don't feel as quite alert or whatever it is and you don't beat yourself up you kind of have to play with it it's like a bit of a game like yeah. you, you set a framework up or a scaffold or a schema that seems to be good now going to bed at the same time which is regularity is king it'll always be king but within a variance like, mm-hmm. it's not going to be go to sleep at 9 o'clock. That can't happen. Like, I think you, you should set yourself a window of, like, an hour. It's like, okay, between the hour of 8.30 and 9.30, I'm going to get into bed and I'm going to fall asleep. Yeah. Because then you have a bit of freedom. Like, you can't just structure everything in life. Without order and chaos together, you're in trouble. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that's where people can start to go wrong is they and where I went wrong for some time uh, was getting so caught up in the structure and being like, this has to happen, otherwise I've failed myself and I'm not sleeping well and, and I'm going to end up with all these poor effects. And then it's actually, it, that's a nocebo effect in itself because mm. you're never going to get it perfect every time. And if and if you don't get it perfect, you believe your whole world's going to go to shit. Yeah. And it's that, <laughs> Which is an exaggeration, yeah. but it, it's... But people do do that. Yeah. Like, that is the thing. And It's the same with nutrition. Mm. And, and, you know, if you don't have any flexibility, then the stress of adhering to this perfect structure and then this, the stress of not being able to is actually a lot worse for you than just being more flexible. And life isn't as fun. Yeah. You need yeah, flexibility. Exactly. Yeah. Like, 
have a frame a framework allows you to build off it mm. right and and have variance the same way we spoke about that having a foundation means you can go play off it yeah but without some <laughs> form of foundation it's really hard to then even know what it's like to sleep good not good how it is to actually have fun not fun on certain nights and go oh, yeah i get it i went out for till yeah. midnight came home i woke up at six you know it's a bit less sleep yeah, yeah. just regulate what you do for the next day to then help for the following day yeah don't let it throw off your whole week no just go okay acknowledge yes that happened play on i feel a bit yeah play on you know i feel a bit worse today and now let's get back on track Mm. which is the same with every habit yes exactly Um, so we uh, let's talk about a framework in a second but i thought it's worth just touching on yeah, what is good or poor sleep? Because, you know, a lot of people know about, you know, the eight hours a night. But like you said, it's going to be different for every person. Some people get, some people will thrive, get by or even thrive on less. And some people really need more. And that'll change throughout your age and demographic and activity levels and stress levels and all of these things. So it's not as simple as going, you have to sleep nine hours a night um but i thought like something that i've found useful in the past is well we can sort of break it up into like interoception and extraoception for signs of a good sleep Mm -hmm. um and like almost similarly intuition and data so the intuition and interoception i would see like if you've had a good sleep and from my own experience and from what i understand um from what I've read and heard is that you'll wake up feeling refreshed either without an alarm or you won't feel like you need a snooze Mm. um, and you won't feel like you have to go straight for the coffee pot. Basically you don't need caffeine to help wake you up. And I know that, you know, this is a really good way to know because very consistently if I get, if my habits are in place and especially my sleep, then I will wake up, I still set an alarm, but I'll wake up before my alarm. I have this wake up light where it slowly, gradually lightens, lights up the room, similar to, similar to like the sunrise. Obviously not as good as the sunrise, but um, I have this light and then consistently, if I'm sleeping well, I'll wake up as soon as the light starts to go, um, as soon as it starts to light up. Whereas if I haven't slept well, then the room will be fully light over a half an hour period of lighting up and then the sound will go and then I'll wake up and I'll be like, I feel groggy and then I'll press snooze usually. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's where the whole circadian rhythm thing comes in. Mm. Like you, the reason we talk about regularity being king within that window is that your body needs foundations and pillars to sort of base how you're going to feel each day and or how you're going to sleep each day. And if it has that regulatory process and you play within sort of that framework, you'll wake up before the alarm or at the same time roughly every day. Yeah. Right? And, that, and, the, and the body becomes real smart. So I'm yeah. like you. Like I rarely wake up with my alarm. Like it might be like one out of every four months. Yeah. Like unless it's like I need to wake up at like 3 a.m. to go on a plane or something. Mm. I just wake up and it's pretty natural. And it's not always that I wake up. My alarm's set for 5 a.m. I might wake up at quarter to five. I might wake up at like 4.30 and most of the time if it's in that window, that little half an hour window, I'm like, all right, I'm awake. Now, does that mean I always get out of bed straight away? Not really because I'm pretty alert when I wake up, mm. uh, but I might get out, do my little morning routine and that's fine. It's, yeah. it's good to go. I don't need the alarm 
It's yeah. when you need the alarm and you snooze it. It's you Ugh. will feel it's hard. It's, it's bad news. You just don't do it. And yeah, you just don't. You just, Be, honestly, yeah. it's too hard to the sleep inertia that you said, but you spoke across. You're just groggy. You're tired. It sucks. And it's not the best way to start the day. You start your day with a procrastination. Yeah. And so yeah, so there's a few issues with snoozing. And I went through a big phase where I would snooze a lot a while back. And I've, for the most part, kicked the habit. But I'll know that my other health habits are, uh, are lagging, if especially if I start snoozing. <laughs> it will because, shock your heart constantly. Like, that's yeah, one thing. You don't yeah. want that little spike in heart rate oh. all the time. And sometimes, mind you, sometimes like in winter, it feels so good to curl up and just hit the mm. snooze button. Just like, oh. But what happens is your brain then thinks you're going into a new sleep cycle. Mm. And so then you get 10 or 15 minutes into a new sleep cycle and then it wakes you up again and it's like, oh. And so then after that, if you do actually wake up or if you do it over and over again, then your brain is... You try try to force yourself to wake up because you actually have to do... You do have to get up. Mm. Um, And then you're like sort of half in a sleep cycle and then half trying to wake up and then you... You get this. Well, I know I get this sort of headachey feeling that no amount of water or coffee can mm. can resolve. You need and to it's, sleep. It's yeah, yeah. We, and so, snoozing is just a is just a um, a bad idea in general. Um, but if but yeah, it's a good sign that you've had a good sleep if you just don't feel like you need the snooze at all. If you're pretty much ready to go straight away when you wake up, you feel refreshed. That's how you know, and it becomes automatic. Like once yeah. you train it for a while, this is like the book that I used to start waking up at 5am or which probably just sort of kicked me into year was by Robert Sharma, the 5am club mm-hmm. and just the habits and stuff within that book. But like, yeah, right, let's start waking up at 5am. There's a lot of cool benefits that come from like the neuromodulators to how you feel, to the practices you put in place in the morning. Yeah. But the overarching theme is that you just set your day up to have a really productive and what he calls a world-class day. Mm-hmm. And it does work like um, because it makes physiological sense as much as it makes conceptual sense to set up your day positively. So when you start to go into like say stuff that is harder, whether it be at work or whatever you have to deal with, you've already had a few little wins. You already had like dopamine hits. You're feeling pretty good. You haven't needed caffeine. Yeah. And it is, it's honestly a really nice way to start each morning. It feels great. Mm. Oh yeah. It it does make a huge difference. And I guess then the other thing that we can touch on is just the extra reception of the external signs that you're sleeping well or poorly aura ring yes i was gonna say so wearables um which the aura ring is a is a a really good one from what i understand i I quite like it i I, and again i try to tell everyone with all wearables again it's not going to always be specific but it's the trend across time yeah and it does it seems to link up pretty well not always um people are really good at having the subjective sense when they wake up, okay, of how have I actually slept? And people do often perform a lot worse than they think they are on cognitive testing. Mm-hmm. But you have a pretty decent understanding, at least to a level. And then if you check it with the data, more often than not, I've always gone, yeah, that's pretty right. Like it seems pretty close because it's tracking your heart rate, your respiratory rate through it, your heart rate variability and giving yeah. you this data to go, okay, this is what you need to look at. And then actionable items like, yeah. okay, how am I going to change it? So whether I have a high respiratory rate while I'm sleeping or a high heart rate, maybe I need to look at things that are going to lower that or my heart rate variability is not as good as it should be. So I'm not sleeping as calmly as I should be. I probably need to look at that, yeah. um, which is really cool because when someone gives you an actionable item based off something like some piece of data, it's great. If you just have data for the sake of data, 
becomes useless mm. and you don't know what to do with it and it can often cause more stress yeah because you're seeing this oh, i'm not sleeping well. i'm not sleeping good <laughs> but i don't want to do about it and yeah. that's and that's where having actionable items is key yeah and so yeah using those those wearables and that data as a reference point and then also combining that with your own interoception yeah. and your own subjective understanding of what's going on and then i guess some other Physical signs would be, you know, dark rings around your eyes and things like that as well. If someone you, tells you you look tired, you probably haven't probably slept tired. well. Yeah. Like, it seems pretty consistent across yeah. time. Like, I don't know if I've ever been told I look tired when I've actually had a good night's sleep. Yeah, it's yeah, it's pretty easy to tell. Hey, yeah, it's like, jeez, you look Yeah, you look you're tired. Like, it's like, you're okay. mm. and, ever, and again, I think it's an intuitive thing. I think people who, you kind of know, like you look at someone, you can just go you're not feeling good or you don't yeah. seem uh, like your normal self or whatever it is. Yeah. It seems pretty indicative. So, yeah. So more good news is that, yes, we do have a good amount of um, power over how well we sleep. And one of the biggest things like we've talked about, obviously you should have seven to nine hours of sleep a night and that's a good time to aim for and figure out where you sit in that range but the quality of your sleep also really matters like Mm. you could be getting nine hours of terrible quality sleep and it still probably wouldn't be enough or you could be getting seven hours of extremely good quality sleep and it might be more than enough Mm. and so let's chat about sleep quality tips you did talk about the king which is regularity and i've certainly found that for myself as well is just going to bed and waking up at the same time as much as you can or within the range like you said uh, it just makes a lot of sense. And then tying that with light and dark cycles yeah. as well. I think the the way that I have conceptualized to try and help people understand is you've kind of got three ways to look at things that are going to help you with sleep. The stuff you do in the evening, the stuff you do during the daytime and particularly morning, and then just the overarching habits that are going to tie both together and sort of help you understand where you're at with your sort of sleep and, and sleep capacity. Mm-hmm. And like you said, regularity is king and the sunlight exposure both morning and afternoon. Those are the two things that I think most people should start aiming for. And then it goes, okay, well, what, what's the next step? Like, what's the next level in the layer? And I mean, I'll start reading them and I'm sure you know a few of them, but like the first one is make sure the bedroom is dark and it is cold. Yeah. So reason being, your body needs to drop it's temperature by one degree to initiate the act of sleep. So that's your core body temperature. So if the room is cold, that's fantastic. It allows you to get there. If the room is dark, we've already sort of spoken about the effects of light. So you're not going to keep yourself feeling awake. Now, the question is, how can I also maybe facilitate that core body temperature change? Have a hot shower. Whilst when I first read it, it seemed counterintuitive to have a hot shower to decrease your body temperature. What ends up happening is you open up all the blood vessels on the surface, which allows you to dissipate the heat, which removes it from your core so your core body temperature can drop. Mm. So then when you go get into bed and everyone's experiences, I'm sure, get real toasty, get real snuggly, you got your fan on or the window open that's nice and cool, it'll help you fall asleep physically. So that's using your body, not so much mindfulness or any mental task. Just a physiological You're physiologically putting yourself to sleep. Yeah. And I think those are things that people can start to do very very easily then the next thing or something very useful in the evening is winding down Mm -hmm. so this again links to the light stuff but don't structure your day up until the point you're going to sleep like you need time to relax and have the freedom so it doesn't mean that you should be watching tv or youtube or tiktok or anything scrolling your feed right up until the point of bed 
I think we've already kind of conceptualized that as an idea of society. People already know they probably shouldn't do that. But winding down is quite honestly, just relax. Maybe play yeah. some card games. Talk read to your, a book. Yeah, read a book. Talk to your friends, family. Mm. Like actually just ease into it. Um, Analog activities, yeah. I think. Uh, away from idea. tech um, and just what it, what you'll find is it will help you to sort of lessen that sympathetic nervous system drive mm. and to sleep well you need to lessen that sympathetic nervous system drive and get yourself into a parasympathetic so and this is where some breath work might come in handy as well so this is one of the other <laughs> things you can do again in the evening so what they have found is you can do meditation or mindfulness meditation I would highly recommend the Headspace app They've got basics one through three, which start at like four and a half minutes, work up to 11 and a half minutes. You can do the meditation before sleep. It'll help put you to sleep. Mm-hmm. And they have little sleep stories. They have uh, like rainforest sounds. I, I, I used to be a huge fan of rain sounds when I first learned or was learning to try and sleep better, to be honest. And I think that's because I grew up on the farm and I love the sound of rain. Um, that app, super useful for anyone who's trying to do it. Other breathing practices, box breathing, like we spoke about. Just a nice calming 4444 or a 3333, depending on your tolerance. Mm -hmm. Or just simply exhaling longer than your inhale and consciously thinking about your breathing. Because all they're all trying to do is keep you focused on something. And it just so happens it's often about you or your breathing and not all the 101 things you probably have to do tomorrow or all the things you did today. Mm-hmm. It's trying to narrow that mind and that focus. Which is a meditation in itself. And then you combine that with the physiological effects of yeah, exhale, emphasize breathing and like a, a physiological sigh, which Andrew Huberman talks a lot about in terms of that literally just triggers parasympathetic activity mm-hmm. by focusing on making your exhales m- like the duration longer and more intense exhales will help drive mm-hmm. parasympathetic activity and then the like the opposite for um, inhale, emphasize breathing and sympathetic activity. So, yeah. um, which is really you can key. tap into those things while also taking a bit of a meditative approach to it as well. Mm. I mean, like some other things that are useful. Uh, one of them is not eating large meals mm. and like drinking a lot of fluid within like ninety minutes prior to bed. Really quickly, like you have the heat that is generated from digestion and metabolism. So that's obviously going to counteract you trying to decrease the heat. You've got just the act of the food sitting there, which feels uncomfortable, right? And your body's trying to do two functions. It can't really digest the food as you're like asleep as well. So it's just a little bit of a conflict. And there are certain food types, which I, I don't really delve into myself, um, that dietitians can help you with, like high GI foods are often pretty mm. good and such. And there are certain types that can stimulate um, neuromodulators more than others. Okay. Um, not that I know a great deal about it, but uh, one of the dietitians that I've worked with commented on my post about it. Um, right. So if anyone wants to go check that out on Instagram, maybe hit her up with some details. But you can use food the same way. Um, one of my favorite ones though is, and this is the one that everyone laughs at when I present it to them, keep your bedroom a sacred space, mm. right? Your bed should be for two things, sleep and sex. <laughs> That's it. That's it, period. Like, ob- the sleep is obvious. The sex, if you have a partner, great. But you shouldn't be on your phone in bed. You shouldn't be on your laptop. You Doing sh- work. No, like, work. Yeah. your brain neuroassociates your bedroom with whatever you do in it. And yeah. if you're working and constantly, and then let's say you're stressed, then you're going to associate stress with the bedroom. And then stress with the bedroom where your bed is means you're probably going to start to link stress and sleeping. And it's just not a good neuroassociation. I won't try and delve too deep into that, but like the point is, keep it simple. Keep it to those two things. Yeah. And then the last 
probably super useful thing is something like to do with your brain waves, which is the delta waves, which is the, the brain waves that happen when you're asleep. Now, if you're trying to induce them, there are certain music or tones of music that can help start to introduce them to your brain as you're prior to going to sleep. Same thing, like you might listen to a podcast and fall asleep. You might listen to rain and fall asleep. Everyone's going to be slightly different, but those sorts of noises can be very useful. Mm, I find white noise is huge. Even just having a fan on really helps for me. I can't sleep. Well, I can sleep, but I have a lot more trouble sleeping in places that's just completely still with no noise. Mm. Um, The other thing that I've found really uh, specifically helpful for me is limiting caffeine. Mm. Um, And I know Matthew Walker also talks about alcohol. So caffeine and alcohol are two very commonly used drugs in our society people don't Fairly think frequent. about them as drugs i don't think as much but they are drugs and one of them is a stimulant one of them is a depressant um and caffeine different people have different sensitivities to caffeine i myself am very sensitive and have found that definitely if i have a, a coffee um or pretty much any kind of caffeinated beverage after 12 um or even like 11 for me I'll have trouble sleeping that night. But even if I have, say, two in the morning before before seven, I'll notice that my... Not necessarily that I can't get to sleep as well, but I know that I'll wake up more likely to want to hit the snooze and more groggy Too many well. caffeinated beverages. Too many <laughs> caffeinated bevos. Oh, no. <laughs> um, and so... But I also know people like my uncle and... Um, like a couple of my mates, they can have a coffee straight before they sleep and they get to sleep fine and they feel like that doesn't affect them in the morning. So different people are going to... And that boggles my mind, honestly. It that, boggles that and freaks like, and, me and out. And we'll never know the physiology of yeah. how they're going on because they haven't had a sleep study. Yes. But for the most part, again, this is why we talk about it as a framework. You, you start within it and pillar things and then you have to kind of trial and error. You've got to yeah. play with it within yourself to see where you're at and... Once you start to experiment, you start to figure out whether you're someone who has such a great caffeine sensitivity and tolerance. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then alcohol is one of those ones where people are like, oh, I'll have a nightcap, have a glass of wine before bed, it'll help me get there. But actually, that's um, not actually helping you get into good quality sleep. It's helping you be... Uh, what's the word? Um, sedated. Sedated, Yes. Uh, you're sedated, but you're not necessarily getting into deep sleep cycles. And they have found that alcohol actually interrupts the sleep cycles. Yeah, not naturalistic sleep is the word that the sleep yeah. people... I think they invented that word. I've never heard of it anywhere I else. I like it. But yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it does make sense. Yeah. Um, so limiting your caffeine and alcohol um, makes a lot of sense. Preferably have zero alcohol at night and then just really understanding how much caffeine is good for you personally as an individual and how much is going to be interrupting um, quality or quantity of sleep. Mm. Um, The last thing, we've talked about sunlight exposure, but getting that daily in some ways, but daily movement as well. Exercise. Exercise. And we haven't really touched on this in the potty today, but an interesting thing about caffeine uh, a big part of how it works as a stimulant is it actually blocks adenosine receptors in the brain. And those... So usually adenosine goes into these receptors and creates sleep pressure, which is just your desire to sleep, essentially that feeling of getting tired and and um, you know your eyes getting heavy and all of this is from the sleep pressure. Um, and so caffeine blocks that, so you get less drowsy um, from caffeine, but... 
exercise and movement essentially builds up adenosine in your body as well. And so the more exercise and movement you get throughout the day, obviously with appropriate recovery um, or appropriate rest, then you'll have uh, a better regulated sleep pressure system. Which explains why when, if anyone's done like a good hard day's work or a good lot of exercise, like you feel more tired at the end of the day. Yeah. So it probably starts to sort of, oh, maybe I should exercise a yeah. bit more. You're like, and everyone knows that intuitively. Like, oh, I'm going to sleep well tonight yeah. after and all that work. Yeah. And, then, and so, yes, you do end up sleeping better. Yeah. Um, so. And I, I suppose like the only thing that's left, because that, like I think if you take any of those things and you then sort of try to link them to how your day is or you start to try and build those habits, sleep journal. Yeah. Like write, write it down, start documenting it because we forget how we felt two days ago. Like no one remembers 100%. it. But if you journal, and I, I use an exercise journal myself, it's honestly, it's not very extensive. It's today's date, did this exercise, felt this, done. Like nice. it's so simple, but it's just so I can reflect upon it like, oh yeah, that's how I did feel or there's something I can learn because I'll forget about that information. Mm-hmm. And I found that sleep journaling can be just a simple way to start to see, oh, I had a really good night's sleep. What did I do then? Like, what did I do on that day? Mm. And you can just start to f- figure out little snippets of information because, I mean... And, and, like, and find the trends. Yeah, the, the trends are important. Yeah. And like with all of it, obviously, we've sort of just spouted all of the things that can help. The last thing people can do is ask for help. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty useful. I like that one. Yeah, it's pretty useful <laughs> because like exercise, like everything else, like nutrition, there is a lot of information out there. It can be overwhelming. It's often hard as a place to start. And if you need help with it or you like help, feel free to message us or talk to people like us who are interested in whether or not you need to go get a sleep study or talk to like a, a doctor who works in that world. Great. Can direct you in that general direction. Mm. But often all of the people within the sleep profession would suggest to you that you should try all these things first before you take the medication or you try the supplements that mm. plus minus have an effect rightly or placebo effect do the simple stuff and again everything that we've just listed is free yeah yeah pretty good when it's free in fact costs you less you yeah. buy less coffees you buy yeah. less alcohol yeah. you know what we're saving you money yeah exactly you're welcome <laughs> um so yeah no that's a good point the, the sleep journal and and just keeping track of how you feel when you wake up how well you feel you slept do you do you remember your dreams you could write down your dreams if you like i'm, I'm actually thinking of getting into the uh, dream journaling because mm. I really love the concept of lucid dreaming more regularly because mm. they're quite fun. Um, they are fun. But yeah, just keeping a track of things so that you do get that understanding. And it's not something that you necessarily have to do forever. Like over time, you do build more of that intuitive awareness mm. of, okay, I did this and it's linked to that and I, I know how this works. So you don't necessarily have to keep track of everything meticulously for the rest of your life but just getting a general understanding of i did this it affected my sleep like this and now i this is my energy today you just you build that general understanding so that you can be more intuitive you're building the foundation yeah and like arnold schwarzenegger said he did meditation straight for a year and then didn't use it for a year or two because he didn't feel like he needed to yeah he felt like he was in a better state of mind constantly it's which is sort of how it should be you got it you have to start somewhere and build forward and then all of a sudden it's like any habit once it stops being a you know a forced habit it becomes automatic Mm. you will automatically become more intuitive if you try to train intuition Mm. like it is possible it's just yeah people don't know how to where or where to start and it's a skill yeah just start yeah start doing stuff 
Yeah. And it's free. <laughs> yeah. Well, that might be a good note yeah. to end it on. Yes. So, um, yeah, get in touch. Like Tom said, get in touch if you do have any questions. Um, we'll link all the resources that we like in the show notes. And I'm sure Tom will be back on Some. for another, another episode round. on something. We've got, what have we got? A list of sunlight, immune function, more breathing. Exercise. Exercise. Stress. Pain. Yeah. There's plenty. How to like, practice your uh, stuff with physiotherapy and within the world of exercise. We've got a lot of things. Oh, geez. We've got to get, we've got to get, uh, get you over more, mate. <laughs> All, All right. right. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. Too easy. Thanks for listening, guys. Have a good one.